Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors Series podcast. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and Editor of Top1000Funds.com. And my guest today is John Clace, who is the Chief Executive of Alborn Partners based in San Francisco. Welcome, John. Hi there. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite to uh, take part. So firstly, John, I just want to check in with you. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and especially for you all in California. How are you doing? Um, doing very well. I definitely feel uh, exceptionally fortunate. Uh, I know a lot around uh, around us are, are suffering, and uh, we've gone from having uh, orange skies uh, less than a week ago to grey to white, and now today we can see blue sky again, although the, the air quality is pretty poor. But... Uh, Otherwise, I'm working from home like, you know, the majority of my colleagues, although actually San Francisco is the only office that's not partially, partially reopened. Um, but in many cases, those, that sort of reopening is still only, you know, 10 to 15 percent of employees. So, uh, but yeah, personally, I'm, I'm doing well. But uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, good to hear. So I want to start this conversation talking about fees perhaps not a, a place some others would start, but um, we've discussed alternative fee models a lot over the years and the pioneering work that you did with Texas teachers, introducing the one or 30 fee model, which is now being taken up by more investors. Can you give us an update on that model and also the move towards different types of fee structures that focus much more on alignment? Absolutely. Um, well, maybe... Uh it's worth, worth sort of stepping back and, and maybe giving you a little bit of uh, a background to how we got to the to the one or thirty uh, fee structure, and and really that kind of describes a focus on the shape of fees, and and we've been talking about that for um, a long time, a long time over the last uh, several years. And actually, if you go all the way back to two thousand and nine, when we came out of the financial crisis. We gathered a big group of investors together to focus on new terms for the new world. Was the name of the event. And we focused on fees, liquidity, transparency, and governance. And, and out of that event, we thought we would come out and really emphasize fees. But actually, overwhelmingly, the preferences of investors at the time was to focus on transparency and governance. And so initiatives like Open Protocol and uh, Administrator Transparency Reports, or ATRs, sort of flowed from that. And that's where we put a lot of our effort. You know, fast forward in, in 2012, uh, for our, at our client event, we spent quite a while focusing on a concept called the angry dollar. And the angry dollar was when an investor is paying for performance, which is really, you can very obviously uh, define as coming from uh, beta. And, uh, and so trying to kind of re <laughs> sort of re-enter that debate around the shape of fees. Uh, and so the following year, we had a whole day focused on the shape of fees in 2013. And uh, at, at the client event, we had an island. And at that point, we also released what we refer to as our investor manifesto. So we've actually now done two of these investor manifestos, but that first one focused on a whole range of different, kind of particularly hedge fund focused uh, issues, but it did include a focus on fees and the need for uh, some more, better transparency around uh, hedge fund expenses and, and aggregate fees. And so there was incorporated a, a desire to see hedge fund expense ratio and various other things. Um, but uh, it also included this focus on the shape of fees. And at the time, we also launched something called the Fee-Mometer, so a tool to try and help managers and investors, and not necessarily investors that are our clients, but just anyone in the, in the market to have a more open dialogue about fees. 
And, uh, and so that was kind of slowly taking off, but it was mainly very large investors working out how they could get better fee agreements, often in fund of one structures. And it was really the underperformance by many hedge fund strategies and some negative alpha in 2015 that, that meant the pendulum swung again, just like it had done in 2008, back in terms of who has the power in that discussion between or the, the negotiation between managers, so L, the GPs and the LPs. And uh, so coming into 2016, we pushed again and a lot of our investors were starting to really focus away from the transparency and governance where we'd seen a lot of progress to focus on on fees. And uh, and so really that then, we sort of, a lot of uh, uh, focus around thinking about not only the level of fees, but more importantly, the shape uh, of fees and discovery, transparency around fees. So uh, in parallel, we did have the conversations with, with Texas teachers where we were set the challenge to think about, well, how can you come up with a fee structure where you get this consistent um, you know, split, this alpha split, how much uh, the LP gets to keep um, versus the GP. And, and that's where the one or 30 came from. Uh, but at the same time, we also launched an initiative around what we called the Into the Matrix. And maybe I'll come back and explain a little bit more about that. But you know, that was uh, another way of focusing on shape and discovery. But the one or 30 model um, was, uh, was designed at the time to really focus on that shape of fee to make sure that investors were thinking about um, and in that debate between or the negotiation between uh, the LPs and GPs to really think about that, uh, that the, the participation in, uh, the, in, in the, the profits, the, the alpha generation of a manager and, uh, and making sure that you are paying for skill. And so, when we, when we structured it, the the all structure um, and the the one or thirty deliberately, I just just a reminder. So you start with the thirty. The idea there was to say, well, actually, the thirty is higher than twenty, but you're actually not expecting to pay uh, for on on total return. You're expected to pay on alpha, so excess return is the first point. So you're willing to pay more, but for alpha, and then you only pay for. The, so you pay out that, that 30% and then only in time periods when the, the manager is not generating sufficient uh, return or excess return uh, or getting this performance fee to, to cover the cost of running the business, would you pay the management fee? And deliberately the, the one uh, was less than two because obviously historically we're thinking about two and 20. And the one, you pay the, the 1% when you're not receiving enough performance fee to cover the overheads of running the business, so uh, but but the so you you either get the thirty percent or you get the one percent, and if you receive the one percent, that's an advance on future performance fees. So it's trying to create this uh, asymmetry um, such that you you're really focused on performance and being compensating a manager for performance. But if they're not, if they're going for a period where the strategy is not generating sufficient return, then you will cover their overheads. Uh, the reality is that the the thirty was not a magic number or the one, and in almost every situation, you end up seeing different uh, return, different different levels being implemented uh, because different strategies warrant different levels. And I think when we talked a, a couple of years ago, I referred to it as X and X or Y, and uh, and actually that's how we that's how we think about it. That's really uh, what's the right X 
for a particular strategy, and certain strategies have much higher overheads um, related to the data, the technology budget, uh, other kind of constraints uh, that might lead to a higher X, uh, and then uh, the you know other strategies where the, the, the there'd be some variation around the, uh, the 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 performance fee number, and you know it's a supply and demand uh, situation clearly. So you know these metrics also relate to just the scarcity of the alpha source and the capacity demand for a manager. I love the simplicity too of how changing one word can change the entire alignment. So changing the and to an or um, has really changed the whole, as you say, shape of the fee. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a small difference, but it's actually, to a certain extent, it was trying to, as I say, uh, create something which you could almost sort of market to the managers and saying, look, what we're actually doing here is we're paying you more performance or we'll cover your overheads. The reality is an or structure is actually exactly the same as an and structure, but with a hard hurdle. So, you know, what, if you actually look through the industry and you look at what changes have taken place, in a lot of cases, they may not have implemented, managers may not have implemented an or structure. They may have just put in place uh, a, you know, a cash hurdle or a fixed percentage hurdle or uh, other uh, similar kind of um, hurdles in place. And they're, they're actually uh, mathematically equivalent uh, in terms of what you're, what you're actually getting. So there's a, there's a, for any particular uh, or structure, there is a, an and equivalent with a, a fixed hurdle. And it really just comes down to how you position that. Uh, I did mention about Into the Matrix and that initiative. And, you know, we launched in 2016. And one of the key points there is we, would, we, were, we were spending a lot of time thinking about how do you actually tackle this in terms of the shape of fees and the discovery of, of fees and rather than the level and trying to get, give investors a better understanding of the options that are out there with a particular manager and with their peers. So that's actually been uh, a sort of a parallel emphasis for us is gathering that data from many hundreds of funds. Now, you know, I think it's almost 750 funds. Um, with uh, over 600 billion in assets, where they've gone down into you know, detail answering a survey around what types of fee structures they'd be willing to uh, consider and, and then how uh, flexible they would be, and they have been and they would be willing to be. So from that comes a score around flexibility and transparency. And to some extent, you know, there's that trade-off that with a manager um, who is being you know, entirely inflexible but is very transparent about that, that could be fine. Uh, but you want to know when a manager is flexible but not transparent, you know, that is not best practice because, uh, you know, ideally you really need to uh, have a better understanding about, you know, what, what managers are offering and being able to also then look, once you gather that data, to be able to look across uh, the, the landscape for equivalent funds uh, and what they're paying uh, or what they're charging, and what other what you would be paying if you're working, you know, working with a different manager to extract a similar uh, return profile. So uh, that's been a kind of a parallel effort to try and gather that data and uh, and then kind of harness that for the benefit of our clients. So, what do the capital flows look like in relation to these fee changes? Are managers being rewarded for improved alignment? Well, a, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of those flows have actually um, you know, tied into, in some cases, um, 
defensive uh, managers, you know, cutting, uh, you know, giving discounts or making changes to in response to uh, the, uh, the the potential for you know some periods of underperformance, and that's what you, you certainly saw, you know, coming out of 2015 in the long short equity space and event driven space. Some of the, the areas where we saw uh, more of those changes, but we've actually just recently done a a review, and when you're looking at uh, the managers who, over the last two years, over 189 different kind of fee changes, and you look at the funds where there were discounts that weren't linked to a concession that a manager's made to make that change, uh, then actually the point where they made those changes, over 70% had a positive trailing uh, three-year return. So it's not necessarily uh, managers that were already underperforming. Uh, and if you look at the impact on on flow of funds, uh, those those firms in aggregate um, had uh, about five hundred billion in assets at the beginning of the of the period, uh, and uh, had a similar uh, amount at the end of the period. So it's uh, it's 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 hard to dig down into the specific uh, impact on on flow of funds, um, but uh, certainly around some of the 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 changes that relates to uh, loyalty discounts. Appear to you know tied to uh, to managers where we've actually seen positive flows, and also those where there have been aggregate uh, discounts across you know a consultant or um, you know for for size of of, of allocation have led to positive capital flows. So it's interesting that you you know you mentioned these new fee structures are putting the focus firmly on paying for alpha, and. I read a term the other day. The other day, de-beta-sizing the structures. Um, hard to get your your mouth around that one. But so, what do you you know this focus on alpha, John? What are you seeing at the moment in terms of alpha? Um, is there any? <laughs> what does it look like? And and some of the asset owners I've been talking to are, you know, wanting much more consistency in the returns from their hedge fund managers rather than those shoot the lights out kind of periods and then having to put up with the underperformance to get there. Um, can you talk a little bit about our, what alpha looks like at the moment? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, no, We're seeing the same trend. And if uh, the way I describe that to your point around you know, looking for more consistent uh, return generation I think when you look across the the hedge fund space, there's definitely a, a an emphasis from investors to focus on relative value or global macro managers, um, managers that that are looking to be a greater diversifier in a portfolio, um, but looking for you know consistency of return. I think that's that's uh, if you're looking at just the the, the flows more recently. Um, in terms of thinking about the actual alpha generation, you know this is <laughs> it's a it's. You know, often people say it's, it's a great question. It's, it's quite a tough question to answer because you know the the challenge that so many you know face is well trying to define you know what what is alpha and, and how should you calculate that and actually that's an area that we spend a lot of time on or as you might expect over you know from the from the from the start of the firm twenty six years ago uh, but actually what was interesting is over the last you know two and a half years um, we actually kind of stepped back and 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 try to to refocus our efforts there because we capture so much data around different managers and and build lots of different models to try and uh, determine well what types of uh, systemic uh, replicatable returns are coming from managers and how much is skill 
And so you end up creating all these different factor models that you know might harness for a particular manager, might harness their um, their regression betas. It could be you know open protocol data. Um, it could be betas that are linked to to risk premia, uh, dynamic beta, um, so different types of risk premia, uh, to, uh, to asset class factor models or hedge fund style factors. And, uh, and so actually we launched a, an alpha profiling tool uh, in 2018, uh, which really tries to, to harness the, well, what are the, the right, um, uh, or we think that the optimal uh, factor models by funds. And then if you're looking across that, that group, and we look at kind of recent alpha generation, it was actually looking pretty good over the last couple of years until we came into uh, March. <laughs> so, um, actually, uh, you know, there's a lot of most strategies were were performing well in terms of uh, consistent uh, alpha generation. But it was really, you know, March we saw something in the order of a negative three percent alpha month, and uh, so that was. You know that was a you know a step back for for many strategies that have been performing quite well, and uh, but not necessarily <laughs> unexpected given the the scale of the dislocation. What we can see since then is that uh, most strategies have have uh, have recouped that those sort of negative alpha uh, losses, and so now we're kind of back into positive territory. Um, for, for most strategies, the, the notable outlier would be structured credit, um, where they're definitely w- the biggest dislocation in in March, um, but uh, but still, you know, a significant part of the way back. Uh, if you look at alpha generation more recently, uh, certainly uh, year to date, the the strongest alpha generation is in stock picking outside of the US, uh, also uh, global macro managers, and then fixed income arbitrage. Uh, in terms of the the you know, top three uh, clusters around, uh, so the the quality of alpha generation uh, year to date, and uh, was, although what's ironic is if you look at fixed income arbitrage, uh, I was actually asked this question uh, at a, a public plan board meeting not too long ago uh, in the last few weeks uh, about the March dislocation, and actually the fixed income arbitrage space. You know, really was saved at the end of that second week of March by the the actions of the Fed, and uh, I think you might be in a different position year to date if if uh, if they hadn't intervened. Um, but obviously, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the sort of the negative alpha that has come through with uh, structured credit uh, is uh, is sort of evidence of what can happen when you see that large dislocation uh, and impact on pricing. So, so how does that all relate to, you know, the last six months and this remote working, socially distant pandemic period that we're, we're all working through? How does that relate to new fund launches and perhaps where these opportunities are? Um, and equally, how does it relate to fund closures? Well, yeah, no, it's interesting you ask that. Uh, I mean, when you... I mean, a lot of a, a lot a lot of a lot of folk are kind of you look at this environment we're all working from home and you think well how how can you new funds launch and and how is this really going to to play out and uh, it's definitely true that we've seen a slight reduction in the number of uh, of launches and some launches just push back uh, a few months but actually if we you know if we dig into some of the data that we harness we have a, a nemo initiative that uh, stands for new and emerging manager opportunities its origin was from a funding nemo event many years ago and uh and actually 
if you look, if we look at our Nemo report, so our, our new funds report, there are over 200 uh, new launches um, that we have kind of captured for for 2020, and uh, and so that's that is down on prior years, but it's still meaningful. And when we look across just the demand from clients, uh, and this is what I would say is really interesting at this point in time in terms of just capital flows through March and coming into April, it really was noticeable how investors were very much on the offensive rather than defensive, you know, really thinking about okay, how do we take advantage of this dislocation? Uh, how, where can we deploy? Can we get capacity with managers that are reopening, um, but also looking at new, new launches. And so, you know, the demand for operational due diligence during this period you know, is up on last year and last year, uh, f- f- you know, was significantly higher. So we've seen year on year growth in that demand, but it's interesting to, to, to just emphasize that the, the demand for that due diligence when, when it's sort of proactive new coverage, you know, that's often on, you know, more often on, on, on new fund launches than it is on, uh, on, on existing long established firms because we have you know, such good coverage of those. So, you know, at this point in time, our, you know, our clients are definitely really focused on, on some of the, those new launches. I mean, there has been a bit of a trend over the last several years in terms of the competition around new launches with platform funds, and that has not dissipated uh, for, for sure. So, you know, that's obviously, if you go back to the, the fee conversation, the platform funds have, have not been forced to cut fees. Obviously, they, there's, a, there's an element there that, you know, they, they command higher fees and they've been able to attract a lot of these sort of, if when someone's thinking about not starting a new firm, you know, do you start up on your own or do you join a platform type organization that will cover some of the operational and, uh, and, and more sort of business functions? And so I think that's been for several years now that has impacted the total number of launches. But I think this year is pretty much in line. When it comes to closures, actually, we haven't seen a very significant uh, uptick, uh, but I think that may well just be down, down the line. We don't, it's a bit hard to predict at the moment. Uh, how this environment will will affect uh, uh, fund closures, but but we haven't seen uh, a significant uh, increase. I mean, a couple of other questions related to the environment. Are your clients looking at portfolio construction differently given this environment? Are they wanting to put things together in a different way or have see-through into their total portfolio in a different way? Are they tilting? You know, what's happening on the portfolio construction side? It's definitely true that there's a lot of investors at the moment who have just stepped back and you come out of a month month like March and just try to re-underwrite the, the role of the, the portfolio. And um, I would say for the majority of clients, you know, that's, um, that's you know, that their performance has met or exceeded expectations. If, if, a, if, a, if a portfolio was skewed towards or had a, a, a sort of a bias towards um, structured credit or some certain kind of vol strategies, uh, then there's, there's caused a little bit more soul searching just around the role of some of those strategies in the portfolio. Um, from a perspective of portfolio construction, uh, there hasn't been a significant change. I would say, um, actually, if you look across our, you know, our clients sort of use of hedge funds, you know, there was already a trend to incorporate you know, hedge funds into uh, different their 
you know, major asset classes. Uh, and so that, you know, that was already well underway. And I don't think there's been a significant change. Uh, the, I think in terms of the, the role that credit plays within a, a hedge fund portfolio, and th- this is really a, um, a trend over the last several years, which is sort of opportunistic credit that has often sat within hedge fund portfolios. There's definitely a, a trend towards bring, breaking that out of a hedge fund allocation and having it sit separately. Uh, although it's actually very common for the hedge fund absolute return teams to continue to have a you know a a lead role in managing those portfolios. So I'd say that's probably the single biggest sort of shift over the last twelve months is if if uh, investors are thinking about where they position that into that sort of uh, hybrid duration um, credit that uh, is in a kind of hybrid structure that may well be shorter, shorter term drawdown vehicles. And that's accelerated. So John, you've, you've said in the past that you think hedge funds are an efficient business model for deploying risk capital, but that they need to evolve to adapt to the current environment and survive whatever that environment might be. Um, what are you seeing in the past six months in terms of that evolution and what good managers are doing to thrive during these stressful times? Yes, I'd say uh, I've definitely said that. And I think it's, it's, it's undoubtedly the case that uh, you know, hedge funds don't have a, you know, this divine right to exist. And so a lot of the underlying strategies are cyclical. And, and so you know, managers that are alert to the, the market environment and can take into account the uh, that evolution is critically important, and there are certain strategies that that aren't destined to continue to offer um, a, a a return suitable for for a you know hedge fund uh, structure. So dynamic beta strategies, or as we refer to them, or risk premium strategies, you know, can can commoditize certain strategies. Um, what's interesting is you're actually seeing a resurgence in some spaces that have looked less attractive for a while, like the convertible bond arbitrage. Um, space uh, this year, we're seeing seeing an uptick in terms of the the, the return characteristics. So there's there's some nuanced uh, areas where there's, there's definitely kind of uh, more attractive opportunities. I wouldn't say you could necessarily look at specific attributes of managers. I think I just come back around to the due diligence processes and thinking about how managers have transitioned to this environment of working from home and and what that has meant. And and actually, I think if you look at how you know if you look at the the most managers have actually managed that tradition transition um pretty effectively uh, in terms of from an operational perspective uh, but when you look at the, the the due diligence process and digging into to managers uh, there's a spectrum in terms of how transparent and engaged managers have become but on the on the whole if anything i think managers have adapted to this environment pretty effectively uh, and and what we're actually seeing, a lot of investors um, that we work with finding that they get better transparency to their managers to, to across both the teams and uh, the documents and transparency has improved. Certainly with our due diligence process, you, know, you lose something by not going on site, but we're conducting our due diligence remotely and the access to risk takers, uh, the access to... Uh, information that you would have only been able to access on site. Now, getting that for longer periods of time and uh, better access to data rooms uh, for, for for different types of information has actually actually improved. Um, but I think that's been a kind of 
if anything, you know, a strength of the industry that uh, uh, the managers have adapted and their, their processes. You mentioned at the outset some of the initiatives that Albon's been involved in over the years to progress the industry and talking about transparency and, and fees. And in the past month, you launched a diversity and inclusion questionnaire, which you're hoping becomes an industry protocol as well. Can you talk a bit about the importance of diversity and inclusion in the investment industry and in the hedge fund industry in particular and how you're planning to be part of triggering progress in that particular area? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. well, look, it's, it's, uh, it's clearly a challenge for the investment industry and, and so many um, parts of uh, society to, to really address uh, some significant uh, systemic inequities and, and how that's translated into uh, different industries. And within the investment industry, that's clearly um, true as it relates to um, different underrepresented minorities uh, that, that do not have uh, the level of representation, particularly as you move to senior levels within the investment industry. Um, we've, we have launched, as you, as you said, a, a due diligence questionnaire um, in conjunction with AMA uh, in the last month. Um, now, really excited about this, this initiative. Um, it builds on, on what we've been doing for quite an extended period of time, um, we went back to 2012. We um, set up our secure extra net to allow managers and encourage managers to uh, self-classify if they were minority or women-owned firms. And because we have a significant number of clients for whom you know they they seek to prioritise uh, those managers through certain parts of their portfolios, and so we we, we worked on that over you know an extended period of time and were surveying. Uh, different uh, stakeholders, so prime brokers and cap intro teams on a quarterly basis and then reaching out and encouraging managers to self-classify. But we, we realised that that doesn't really have the impact going down through organisations. And so in 2018, as part of you know, our review of our, our corporate priorities, we, we, we did two, two things. So uh, we have 15 commandments each year that are strategic priorities and with someone who, who leads that as a, as a commando, a project manager. And one of those commandments in 2018 was to focus on ramping up our diversity and inclusion efforts and in particular also around minority and women-owned firms. And uh, in parallel, we also launched the Investor Manifesto 2. So I referenced Investor Manifesto 1 earlier. Investor Manifesto 2 uh, was launched at the end of 2018 and it had 50 proposals and 10 uh, mini-festos within that investor manifesto. One of those was focused on responsible investing, including a focus on diversity and inclusion. And so Tyler Hutchcool in San Francisco, who uh, led the, uh, uh, that initiative, um, worked with, uh, sort of engaging with ILPA, uh, who in 2018 launched a part of their questionnaire focused on diversity and inclusion. And then in addition, she was collaborating with AMA and with SBAI. And in the end, uh, with ILPA's blessing, we worked with AMA to enhance their initial questionnaire to expand its reach. And so what we're hoping is this uh, enhanced questionnaire, which has additional protected classes captured, so around LGBTQ+, veterans, status, uh, people with disabilities, as well as underrepresented minorities and, uh, and women within, within finance. Uh, and so looking through that questionnaire, 
to uh, gather data around um, workforce diversity, uh, but also ownership, as well as insights around uh, family-friendly leave policies and and uh, uh, and also uh, staff uh, conduct information. So it's building on on what we've been doing elsewhere within ODD for several years now. We've had a section on employment practices within our uh, ODD reports uh, that focused on. Uh, so that was anti-harassment, equal pay, and diversity and inclusion. So really thinking about the policies and practices of managers, but now trying to encourage managers to share this data. And uh, really, uh, I, I think it's it's you know I think I'm I'm really hopeful that uh, that this will have a, a material kind of impact on on how managers approach uh, DNI within their businesses. So what have you been seeing in terms of feedback around? diversity and inclusion as part of the ODD process, both from managers and investors? Well, we've had phenomenal feedback, uh, and in particular from the questionnaire just in this last uh, this last month. So we already have over 400 funds that have submitted the questionnaire. Admittedly, there are some large organisations uh, that represent a big chunk of that, uh, that data, but there's 284 hedge funds, 154 private market funds with uh, uh, 60 managers in aggregate that represent those, those managers. So, it's, so from that perspective, there's already significant uptake. And just in terms of investor uh, feedback, we actually did an investor review recently with about uh, almost 150 investors, over 5 trillion in assets. And uh, we... Uh, that I think the median fund size was, was about 10 billion. So just to give you context, and we uh, asked a whole series of questions. One of the questions was around diversity and and how important it was that we incorporate that into our research. And we asked that same exact same question two years ago. And when we asked the question two years ago, 70% of the respondents said it was not important that we uh, factor diversity into our uh, our research and rate diversity that's completely flipped in 2020. So 77% of our uh, of the respondents actually said it was important or somewhat important this time around that we incorporate uh, diversity into uh, into our research. Uh, so from that perspective, I think it's been you know there's there's real demand from investors to do this. What we're actually the feedback from investors when we're speaking to them now is that they've been really struggling as to how to gather this data. So actually having a a standardized template is really helpful to help them to uh, to coalesce around. And on the, and similarly on the manager side, we've also been hearing some of the kind of preliminary kind of feedback is been very positive because you know, a number of managers, certainly those involved in the beta phase, um, when we were kind of doing some consultation with LPs and GPs to develop the questionnaire and refine it, um, but even in, just in the last month, hearing that this has actually been very helpful in terms of triggering their own work internally in terms of new policies that they're putting in place uh, in response to thinking through the questions and uh, ways that they can enhance their own uh, diversity and inclusion. So I think uh, from that perspective, it's been really positive. Yeah, it sounds like the the environment is is right and the timing's right for change. So that's really interesting. And you mentioned that diversity and inclusion is part of responsible investment and you know it seems like we can't have a conversation these days without mentioning ESG and it's certainly something that we've been reporting on and and looking at for about 10 years now and top 1000 funds hosted a very successful sustainability digital event 
recently, which included the head of research at Bridgewater, Karen Carniel-Tambour, talking about how they're thinking about sustainability and incorporating the sustainable development goals into a version of the all-weather product. So I'm interested in, in what you're seeing in the broader market of alternative managers and how they're incorporating ESG into investment practice. Well, it's, it's definitely uh, true that, that so hedge funds have been you know been sandwiched on both sides by you know parts of the kind of the investment spectrum who've been radically more progressive as it relates to uh, incorporating ESG into uh, their investment processes, both on the traditional side, but also many of the private market strategies. And certainly, if we look at you know how you know our evaluations have have taken ESG into account as it relates to uh, IDD. You know, across real assets and real estate strategies, you know, clearly that's been inherent to the to the uh, key key success factors for for those strategies for an exceptionally long time. As it relates to you know, hedge funds, we've actually been part of the EuroMPRI's hedge fund working group for uh, I think from from the point it started now, um, not quite, but almost ten years ago. And uh, so, from that perspective, helping to to, to work towards the due diligence questionnaire that that uh, the PRI published. And, and so we've actually also been gathering, you know, ESG um, questionnaire data from fund managers uh, now for, for many years and, and scoring those. So we have a kind of a scoring that digs into the, the degree to which and assesses the degree to which ESG factors are, are really kind of incorporated into a, a, a firm's investment processes um, and as I mentioned before, we're also focused through ODD around uh, have a whole section. So the fourth section of RSD is focused, of RSG component within ODD is focused on employment practice. But the first three focus on resources and uh, and and policies and and uh, reporting. And so we've been focused on on that for for some time now, gathering that data. There are certain hedge fund strategies where you know, it's it's. It's natural within long shot equity, within activist strategies, uh, where you're, you're certainly seeing the most progress in terms of integration and uh, and, and managers uh, taking kind of steps to to really formalise how uh, ESG is ESG factors are integrated and a greater awareness of how the SASB and materiality matrix uh, can impact their decision uh, making. Uh, and uh, and similarly around uh, some of the active strategies and thinking about some of the sustainability development goals as well in terms of you know, how that those are being kind of harnessed to 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 really assess like and but but actually I think Bridgewater is a little you know, is is less common when you look across to the sort of relative value uh, macro base some of the systematic strategies uh, it's is less common to see the the formal you know inclusion of of ESG factors into your investment processes, but we're starting to see progress there, and we're certainly advocating now uh, that managers uh, have a greater awareness of of how they can incorporate ESG into those uh, uh, into those strategies. John, you've got an enormous job, and um, we're all under time pressure at the moment, maybe more than ever. So I really appreciate you taking some time out to have a conversation with us. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, as always. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Amanda. It was great chatting to you too. Stay well.